0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning or good afternoon, everyone. We are here today with Dr. Marcella Ward to talk about her new book, Blindness and Spectatorship in Ancient and Modern Theatres, Towards New Ways of Looking and Looking Back. So this book was published in 2023 by Cambridge University Press and uh, we have uh, the author here with us to uh, discuss about uh, her work and uh, answer to a few questions. And uh, so welcome, uh, Marcella, and thank you for accepting uh, this uh, uh, interview. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, yes, so to begin with, uh, can you tell us something about yourself uh, and uh, your work as, uh, as an academic? I can absolutely yeah um yeah my name is marcella
1: ward almost everyone i know except my grandmother when she's grumpy calls me chella um so yeah i'm I'm, I'm chella um i'm lecturer in classical studies at the open university um but i actually wrote most of this book while i was working at the university of oxford um and i was a fellow there at worcester college I was what's called an outreach fellow. So that means I had responsibility for all of the work that the college did to oppose the inequalities and biases that structure unequal access to universities like Oxford. I left in 2022. I left uh, to go in search of a fairer kind of higher education um, and also uh, a more equitable approach to classical studies um, and, and found that at the Open University. So I'm someone who is very much trained in kind of what, what, you would call traditional literary disciplines, right? Disciplines like classics, like English. Um, and then did kind of most of my graduate work in, in classics and classical studies. But I'm interested really in what literature and other forms of cultural expression can tell us about how prejudice is articulated across time. I should say that I think of myself uh, as a non-disabled researcher. I'm a sighted person. And so I do this work out of, uh, first of all, a kind of solidarity, but secondly, um, out of a really kind of long-held, deep-seated conviction um, that this work of uh, opposing ableism should not fall on already underrepresented scholars, like disabled scholars, and should be work that all of us are involved in, particularly, um, you know, enabled scholars who have been so key to the perpetuation of ableist prejudice. And if I had to sum up my research interests... um, I think the way that I would explain it is I would say that I'm particularly interested in bodies across time and especially in those bodies that are understood by societies to differ from an imagined normal or normal body in a particular way. There's no such thing, of course, as a normal body, uh, but societies at various times have liked to imagine that there was such a thing as a normal body. And what that so-called normal body. Um, the term normate is often used in disability studies to describe a body constructed as normal. and um, so you might hear me using that term normate. Um, there's obviously no such thing as a normal body, but societies have liked to imagine that there was, um, and that normate body that imagined normal body has looked different in different societies. Though there are common threads, it's often been white. It's often been male. It's often been enabled rather than disabled, for example. So my work is really interested in making sense of how and why people across time, across history have attributed meaning to bodies that they've understood to be different from that imagined normal body. So, and usually that, that attribution of meaning the way that bodies are made meaningful usually has something to do with narrative and let me um if you don't mind give a kind of quick example of what i mean by by narrative because i think it's important for how we understand the book and and, and the rest of our conversation anyone who's had the experience uh of you know moving around in the world with a broken leg for instance with a cast on their leg will have had the experience of people and, it, and it's not one or two people it's usually many many people coming up to them and asking a question that goes something like How did you do that? How did you break your leg? What happened to your leg? And what people mean when they ask that question is tell me a story, right? Construct a narrative that makes sense, that explains for me why your body differs to the body I imagine as normal. That's to say a body that doesn't have a broken leg. So I call those things embodied narratives, right? Those stories that we tell to make sense of bodies that are perceived to differ from an imagined normal. Now, in that example that I just gave you, the person who has the broken leg gets to shape their own narrative, right? They get to tell the story about what happened. They get to explain that broken leg, but most people don't have the luxury of crafting their own narratives in that way. Many people's bodies are read according to dominant narratives in the societies in which they live. And they're often read in ways that are ableist in ways that are racist, um, in, in ways that are fatphobic and in fact fatphobia is perhaps the most obvious way that many people might have encountered this uh, particular kind of narrative prejudice that i'm trying to explain um because fat, fatphobia of course is something that that shapes the way that larger bodies are perceived in society many societies tell themselves a story a narrative a narrative prejudice about these bodies they say prejudice things like people are unhealthy, right? That's a story. It's about attributing narrative meaning to those bodies. Th- those stories forge a connection between two things. And that's a-, a discursive connection, right? It's one that comes about in the telling of a particular kind of story. And that connection is what we might call prejudice, right? And it alters how people who are subject to that prejudice are treated in the modern world. And, and still today, this is not a historical phenomenon, this narrative prejudice. So my research is really interested in and has always been interested in different ways in unpicking and dismantling those narrative prejudices. And as I've already hinted, they relate to different aspects of bodies and embodiments, including prejudices like uh, ableism, which is the one that we're going to focus on today, uh, but also racism, Islamophobia, which is a kind of racism. Those are all forms of narrative prejudice that I've been interested in. And I'm interested in asking where they come from, how they're constructed, who perpetuates them and why, and perhaps most importantly, most crucially, how those prejudices can be ended. I think that's how I would situate my my research.
0: Yes, and in down uh, in your uh, in your book, you like uh, um, your book embodies this uh, uh, this uh, program, uh, taking into account uh, a very specific uh, uh, kind of narrative, uh, which uh, is uh, the one of classical uh, theater. And uh, a specific disability, uh, which is uh, uh, blindness, and you explore in your uh, in your work uh, how uh, the relationship between uh, the depiction of blindness in classical theater and uh, the perpetuation of uh, tropes and metaphors uh, about blind people in uh, the modern uh, world. So you already have uh, um, described how this. Uh, Process work uh, in uh, uh, in uh, general. Maybe uh, do you have any precisions uh, about uh, how this process, the characteristics of this process, uh, mm-hmm. concerning the specific case study you uh, you analyze in uh, your book? Absolutely, yeah. So so as you say, the
1: book is really interested in one particular example of this narrative prejudice, and that example is the ableist tropes and narratives that circulate about blind people. And I identify in the book five tropes that are really, really obvious throughout literary history and especially theatrical history. And those five tropes form kind of key chapters in the book. So those tropes are, number one, a relationship between blindness and punishment. The idea that blindness is a punishment for some kind of sin or wrongdoing or um, some kind of evil action. Two, blindness and death. The idea that blindness um, is a kind of living beyond death or that it brings the blinded character closer to death in some way. The third one is uh, blindness and second sight or insight so the idea that blind characters have some kind of spiritual vision or they can see the future or they become prophets or they have some kind of special knowledge special insight. The fourth one is the opposite um, interestingly of that trope which is the relationship between blindness and ignorance so the idea that blind people are somehow deficient in knowledge and that, um, plays into a, a very, very standing tradition in uh, European philosophy in particular of positioning knowledge and vision as if they were the same thing. So that's the fourth one is blindness and ignorance. And then the fifth one is this relationship between blindness and pretence. So the idea that, um, is very dangerously still leveled at disabled people in the modern world that they're really pretending, right? They're not actually blind. They're pretending to be blind. Um, so those are the five tropes that, um, I traced throughout literary history, particularly, as you say, theatrical history from the ancient world that I think are still operating in the present day. I could have focused on uh, a number of others. Um, but these ones seem to me to be the ones that are still very pernicious today, uh, for the lives of, um, blind people, you know, real blind people. I'm not talking only about characters in the theater and talking about the way that, um, These tropes, as they are retold through characters in the theater, have real material effect on the lives of people as they live today. And in the book, I'm very clear on what my motivations are for doing this project, right? This isn't just a a kind of project of, well, let's track these things and write a nice little book about them. Um, I'm doing this because I, I want this prejudice to be ended. That's to say, I want to stop the perpetuation of this narrative ableism. And so I'm asking the question. Where does this prejudice come from, right? In order to know how to end something, it might help to know where it's coming from. And it won't surprise you uh, given what I've said about my training in, in classics and classical studies to know that I found the answer to that question in ancient myths and especially in the ancient theater. And there's a number of different examples that I could give, but perhaps the most obvious one um, is a play called The Oedipus Tyrannus uh, by a playwright, uh, Greek tragedian Sophocles first performed probably around 429 uh, BCE. And it's a play that encompasses each of these four tropes about blindness, right? It's about um, a man called Oedipus who uh, is abandoned as a baby on the side of a mountain because of a prophecy uh, that has told his uh, father that he's going to kill his father uh, and marry his mother. So he's he's uh, left for dead on a mountain. In fact, his... Um, feet are kind of pierced with a rod so that he can't crawl away and then he's left as a young baby on the side of a mountain. Of course it wouldn't be much of a myth if he met his end at the moment when he was expected to meet his end so of course he doesn't. He's rescued by a shepherd and he's passed among a series of families and he ends up um, growing up a long way from the city where he's born Um, and then you know one night uh, he uh, is told by somebody that the family that he's grown up with are not um, his kind of biological mother and father. So he goes in search of them and he ends up, as he's kind of on this search, he ends up uh, fulfilling that very prophecy and killing his own father. Uh, There's a brawl. It's sort of an accident. We won't really go into it. But anyway, uh, the father ends up killed by the son, exactly as the prophecy said. And Oedipus then continues on into Thebes. There's a short interlude with a sphinx that I won't go into, but um, ends up um, marrying his mother, um, and then uh, there's a plague uh, in Thebes and uh, Oedipus uh, calls, uh, you know, various kind of religious figures and prophets to try and find out what's causing this plague, why people are are, are so uh, unhappy and suffering to such an extent, um, you know, and, and he's told that the wrong person uh, has taken over as, as king and he sort of vows that he'll find out who it was that killed the real king. Um, and when he finds this out, he'll punish this person most harshly, not knowing, of course, all this time that that, that it's in fact himself uh, that he will end up punishing. So anyway, to cut a very, very long story short, um, he calls a prophet to him to explain this. And that prophet's called Tiresias. And, and the prophet uh, is blind. He's a very frequent figure, interestingly, in the theatre. Tiresias appears in a number of classical plays and... But he has been given Tiresias this prophecy in the myth in exchange for his blindness. So that's the kind of you know blindness and knowledge picked. Um, and there's a long discussion between them about the relationship, about the fact that Tiresias can't see, but yet he feels that he knows the real truth. Whereas Oedipus can see and of course can't uh, see in the metaphorical sense that it's in fact, you know, he himself who has, who has killed the, this king. And then, um, so that that's the kind of blindness uh, and knowledge and blindness and, and ignorance trope that I point to in the book. And then Oedipus, of course, uh, goes on, you know, very very famously in the myth to blind himself as an attempt to kind of punish himself for, for uh, what he then realizes he's done, which is to uh, kill his father and sleep with his mother. So we get then this idea of of blindness and punishment coming in as well. There's a very, very famous play. It gets, uh, you know, reworked over and over again in theater history. And each time that it's reworked, of course, these prejudices and these harmful tropes that are encoded within it get kind of passed on to new audiences and are then perpetuated in new ways. So one answer to the question, you know, where does this prejudice come from? has to be, well, Greek tragedy, right? Or at least ancient myth, Greek myth in that sense. But there's a problem with saying, you know, these uh, narrative ableisms are tropes that have existed, you know, all throughout history, at least since the myths of ancient Greece. There's a problem with saying that because as soon as you tell someone that a prejudice has existed consistently since the ancient world, it starts to seem very, very difficult to counter that prejudice, right? We start to feel like we're locked into something that has simply always been the case that can't be counted and that can't be ended. And so that, you know, for me, was, was really very difficult. I mean, ancient Greece after all is about as far back as many people can imagine, not because it really is the beginning of history or the beginning of the world in any real way, but because most people's educational curricula are skewed towards imagining ancient Greece and ancient Rome as the kind of mythical beginnings of Europe, right? Greece and Rome function sort of like superhero origin stories in a way. They're the sort of foot soldiers of European supremacy. And so when most people hear that these narrative ableisms have always been that way since the ancient world, since antiquity, they start to feel helpless to do anything about them. And that strikes me as a particularly dangerous place to be in when there is so much work that still needs to be done to counter them, you know, in the real world today. So I needed a new way of framing that relationship between ancient and modern. You know, the subtitle of the book is towards new ways of looking and looking back. And what I'm arguing is that we need a new way of looking back to antiquity, a new, a new way of understanding what that relationship is, because I needed to make clear that we're not powerless in the modern world. We choose to perpetuate these prejudices in the ways that we retell these stories. And in the book, I described um, this as a kind of complicity. Um, I say, you know, we're complicit in bringing these dangerous narratives into the modern world. And I don't do this kind of simply to point the finger at people, right? I don't do it to, to lay the blame or to ignore all of the various important contexts that make it so easy to perpetuate these prejudices. And, you know, one particularly important context, um, is of course the European colonial desire to read bodies for meaning. In order to categorize them and to assert that, you know, some, some people are more important than other people that relied on various forms of narrative ableism, narrative racism, um, that are similar to, to what I'm describing. So I don't do that to erase that history. and And I don't do that to say, um, to sort of point the finger at people who are individually responsible for this, but I think there's a kind of empowerment in understanding our complicity and, and I want to empower us in the modern world to begin to counter these narrative prejudices. So to kind of say, the point of the book is really to say, you know, yes, these things are ancient stories, but we're not powerless products of those ancient stories in the modern world. We also produce that ancient world in the way in which we engage with it.
0: Yes, uh, sure. It's uh, uh, it's absolutely something that makes sense as, uh, well, of course, uh, if uh, we listen to, to you, but it's indeed, uh, I guess... Uh, like common knowledge or common perception that that uh, what is uh, engraved in the myth and the root of the in the myth of the antiquity, it's kind of uh, as natural as gravity. It cannot be <laughs> be it's a law of uh, of our existence. And in in your book, you use uh, terms uh, the term uh, disabled and disability. Which uh, um, it's uh, well, uh, kind of interested me for the choice of uh, the lexical choice because these are terms that uh, well have been entered in uh, the uh, modern language quite recently, they have been used consistently. Scholarship only since the 1970s, and uh, they are kind of uh, have a specific meaning and connotation for us today. That uh, I'm not sure that uh, it's. Uh, it- Suits the antiquity, so it is uh, like an a a, uh, like it's not an anachronism for us to use terms like disabled and disability when we discuss uh, conditions like blindness in uh, in ancient Greece, for example. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question, and and it's one that
1: I'm relatively often asked because you're right that terms don't map easily across languages, and even modern languages. You know, when we talk about translation. We are never talking about sort of one-to-one substitution with exactly equal meaning because of course, of course, words make their meaning in their context. Meanings are socially produced. So meanings are made you know, by, by usage as, as much as anything else. So you're of course right to say that um, we won't be able to find a sort of exact analog um, for disability, but you could really say that about any word to do with bodies, right? Because bodies are not static objects that, you know, remain the same throughout time. Bodies are also uh, produced by their societies. And I don't mean by that, that, um, you know, we have some kind of machine that that uh, societies turn the, the handle on and, and bodies are churned out into the world. I don't mean produced in that sense. I mean, produced in the sense of um, the idea that, it, that it's societies that make bodies meaningful. It's societies that value certain bodies above others, certain attributes of bodies above others. Um, we could, you know, the example that, that many people give of this is the way that um, capitalism values bodies for their productivity. So there are certain aspects of bodies that become valued, things like normative sleep patterns or things like uh, physical strength, the, those, those kinds of things. So societies are involved in the way that we make sense of bodies. And that means that bodies change, uh, across time. They're not, they're not, as I said, static objects. So of course you're absolutely right that, that this, um, that the terminology will be difficult and that we have to be very, very careful with, uh, particularly ideas of retrospective diagnosis. So that's a term that means taking, um, uh, something that we can diagnose in the modern world, uh, a disease for instance, thats under a medical model, um, we could we could say here's a list of symptoms and that conforms to you know the following illness we have to be very careful about doing those things with the ancient world um because what we can't do is assume that that what bodies meant in the ancient world um or what bodies kind of were enabled to mean by societies in the ancient world is the same as what they're enabled to mean in the modern world so that is important the kind of caveat that i want to put on your question though um because you're right that that uh this question about the terminology that's used for disability in the ancient world is something that has been written about an awful lot and the most common way that it's written about is by people saying disability is a modern concept it would not have existed in antiquity and we have to pay very careful attention i think to the reasons why this question is articulated and of course in in, in the case of you asking this question that's not the case but um something i find particularly interesting about uh, people who want to say there was no such concept of disability in the ancient world, is that they often want to say it for a specific reason. They often want to articulate it in order to undermine rights and freedoms that were very, very hard won by disability justice activists um, in in kind of the history of the world. One very common uh, narrative that's very, very popular among the far right, for instance, is the idea that ancient Spartans used to commit uh, infanticide against disabled children, kind of routinely, and that this, it, it rears its ugly head on the internet, it's a horrible, horrible story, but it rears its kind of, um, you know, horribleness on the internet in in various places relatively frequently. And there are sort of two ways to respond to that. And, and what's lying behind that, of course, is the idea that, um, you know, that, that not being prejudiced against disabled people uh, is a kind of modern concept, right? That, this, that, that that it's sort of natural in some way to be ableist, to be prejudiced against disabled people because, well, the Spartans were, though so it's always been that way
0: And there are
1: two ways to respond to this kind of argument the first is to say that you know it's this is not good history right this is not a particularly good reading of the evidence um and to point to interesting research in ancient material culture work being done by uh, people like debbie sneed particularly in the case of the spartans but also um by people like alexandra morris uh kyle lewis jordan ej graham for instance people who are doing this work are really looking at the evidence and that evidence shows that you know, we have actually pretty good evidence for things like accommodations, like ramps, like bottles that are modified um, for feeding people, th- those kinds of things. There is good evidence for those things. So um, it simply isn't the case that disabled people were always ostracized or were, were always viewed as kind of undesirable uh, people in society. But the second way to respond to one of these kinds of claims, and I think in a way, almost the more important one is to respond by saying. Why do we automatically make that assumption? Who wants that to be true? And why do they want that to be true? Um, in other words, you know, to whose benefit is it to assume that ableism has always existed and everybody has always been ableist. I mean, I, I, I find that dodgy, right. As a, as a, as an idea, and it worries me when I hear those kinds of things, um, articulated, these kinds of examples show us, um, that these people who you know make these kinds of arguments about the Spartans, for instance, they want to position societies that are supportive of disabled people and people who are in solidarity with disabled people as latecomers to the history of the world, and and we see similar things with other prejudices, right? The one that is taking the internet by storm this week um, has been the uh, you know that the, the far right's reaction to the Netflix documentary about Alexander the Great, and the far right reaction has been um, to say that it was woke and incorrect to portray Alexander the Great as queer. Um, and people say that because they want to position um, meaningful solidarity with queer people and queer experience itself as something that that came late, right, to the history of the world that wouldn't have been known to Alexander the Great. And that's, of course, not the case, right? Anyone who knows anything about, about Alexander the Great knows that that's not the case. But there's a, there's a, 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 political reason for saying, oh, you know, uh, didn't exist in the ancient world. Um, solidarity with disabled people didn't exist in the ancient world. Accommodations, accessible environments didn't exist in the ancient world. The concept of disability, you know, wouldn't have existed. So we couldn't have made meaningful accommodations or made accessible societies around that concept. There's a particular reason why people often say that. And, and I think it's really important when. We ask questions like, did the Greeks know of such a thing as disability? That the very quick follow-up question to those sorts of questions is, well, who benefits from the idea that they didn't because, you know, the answer to the question who benefits from the idea that Alexander couldn't have been queer or who benefits from the idea that all Spartans committed infanticide against disabled children, the answer to who benefits from that is precisely, you know, the, 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 the sort of prejudiced uh, awful groups who would wish, you know, violently to enforce the normate body and normate, uh, sexualities and, and all of those various harmful things. So it's a dangerous question. Right. Um, and, and, and another kind of answer to the question, why do we think this right is in a way the question of translation, because there are of course, terms that are used for non normate bodies in the ancient world. So a a good example of one that I think in a sense comes relatively close to the word disabled um, is the word peros, um, which is a Greek word uh, that's used of uh, Thamaris. Thamaris is a a poet who is blinded in the myth as a punishment for having boasted that he was a better poet than all of the muses put together. And he's blinded for for this boastfulness. Um, And Homer describes him as peros, and that's a word that is usually translated as something like maimed, right? Something like, uh, it, it's kind of unclear precisely what aspect of, of his body, uh, or of his mind has been maimed. Um, that's not clear. Um, it, it, it's just, it's marking difference. It's saying there's something that has happened to his body and it's become, the body has become different to the kind of normal assumptions, uh, about bodies that were common among that society. And now here's the the really interesting thing I think about this question of translation. And it's that we, in a sense, can't translate something without, or a word like that, it's difficult to translate it without imposing onto it some kind of value judgment about different kinds of bodies, right? So it's, it's a word that only appears once in Homer. Um, and so there aren't many other examples for us to, to compare it to. But even when we get words that are used of bodies where there are lots and lots of examples that we can compare it to, it's often very difficult because the way that the modern world kind of reads bodies, analyzes bodies, judges bodies is quite different to the way that your know, various different ancient societies would have done that. And, and to give an example of this translation problem, I'm going to give an example that um, I uh, write about in an article with um, a colleague and, and very good friend of mine, Hannah Silverblank. We, um, wrote an article called why does classical reception need disability studies? And in that article, we looked at this particular Greek word and And it's a word that is used to refer to the legs of the Greek God, Hephaestus, right? Hephaestus is the, uh, the Smith God. He is the person who makes the armor for all of the kind of heroic warriors in his kind of forge, the blacksmith God. Um. And he is, uh, associated with two things. One is his incredible creativity. The other is the fact that there is something about his body that is positioned as not being normal. According to, you know, that, that kind of construction of normal that I was referring to earlier, there's something about his, his body that is constructed as, as, not being normal. And, and that, that non-normateness of the body is referred to using this Greek word and ace. So the question is, well, what did that mean then? What was it about his body? There are other bits of evidence, uh, that, that give us some suggestions. It might mean, uh, having feet that face in opposing directions. It might refer to his movement, to the way in which he walks. Um, it might, it, it might be kind of something to do with his legs, but we don't know exactly what. Now, when we look at the translation history of this word, what we see is that many, many translators have encoded this word with the kind of value norms, the ableist value norms of their own societies, right? They've said it means something like, um, uh, you know, they've used slurs, for instance, like they've said it means crippled, or they've said it means, um, you know, unable to walk, or it means um, having a, a kind of weakness or having strong arms or having, there are all these kind of various ways that it's translated. But each one of them imposes a, um, particular kind of value system onto that word that simply isn't there in Greek, right? We, 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 it's very difficult for us to know whether this was read positively, negatively, whether it in fact, you know, wasn't read with a value in mind at all. Um, because of course bodies, you know, in, in, in real terms don't have value. Those are things that we attribute to them discursively. We say, well, this is a good thing about a body or a bad thing. In fact you know, it's just a thing, um, until it comes into contact with an environment that values certain kind of bodies over other kinds of bodies. So there is this, um, sense in which translation, because translation is encoded with the values of its own time and its own translators makes it very, very difficult for us to ascertain, you know, whether there is such a thing as disability in the ancient world. I think it's more like, uh, that we imagine in the ancient world based on kind of preconceptions, including prejudices that we have in the modern world. Um, and if we want to imagine an ancient world that was simply hostile to all disabled people, then that is how we construct the ancient world. So I think it's very, very important that we don't do that. Um, I always think of the line from The Perks of Being a Wallflower, the film, when I, when I think of this, I think of the line that goes, you know, the line, um, we accept the love we think that we deserve. I think, which, you know, became very, very famous on the internet from that from that uh, film. I always think of it in, you know, in terms of the ancient world, because I think that we create the ancient world we think that we deserve to. Um, and I think in this case, it's incumbent on us to create a different one. And that means trying to think about disability in the ancient world without imposing modern ableism onto the way that we imagine it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And even if, uh, like, it's a I guess, it's a difficult exercise because every time we take a look at the past, uh, we look uh, at the past because uh, we are interested in the past uh, for some reason that concerns us in the present, and uh, the 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 uh, the um like maintaining a sort of uh, ethical uh, the regards in the past uh, without uh, putting our uh, eyeglasses <laughs> that comes from the present. It's uh, uh, it's really. I, I guess it doesn't come uh, spontaneously. And uh, uh, in, uh, so you were discussing at the beginning about uh, the different uh, uh, tropes uh, that uh, are, uh, uh, that accompany uh, the characters uh, of uh, ancient theater uh, which are uh, blind. And uh, most of them uh, are uh, kind of negative. Uh, so you discuss, you mentioned the blindness as a punishment. Uh, uh, in the, ca- the case, for example, of uh, Oedipus, uh, because he violated a law, and of nature, p- people are not supposed to marry their parents. Uh, uh, m- m- blindness uh, as a metaphor for death. Uh, blindness uh, uh, as linked to ignorance. Uh, so, uh, and most of the characters you present, uh, you 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 discuss in your book uh, are uh, like uh, it's difficult to empathize with them are villain or villainized. Uh, so my question is. Uh, so um, are there uh, like uh, the overwhelming majority is the overwhelming majority of blind characters characters in ancient theater negative ones, villains or villainized, or uh, are there cases of uh, characters uh, that uh, inspires uh, uh, pity or empathy? Is there a case of a kind of saint invalid uh, as we find, for example, in more modern narratives, uh, so, uh, what is the situation?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the first thing I would say in response to your question is that this villainizing of disabled characters is absolutely not just an ancient thing, you know, we still get today, um, Captain Hook is maybe the most famous, you know, most famous example of, of a kind of a Disney, uh, villain whose disability is supposed to be in that story in a very, very ableist way is supposed to be a sort of proof of his, of his villainousness, right? We still, unfortunately, get many, many examples. Um, in fact, there's one of the chapters of my book that begins with simply a big list of all of these modern villains, um, where the logic of the narrative is that the dis- that their disability ought to confirm something about their vil- villainousness, that's a difficult word to say. Um, but it's unfortunately, you know, still very, very common. In the ancient world, um, you know, as you pointed out in ancient myth, um, this idea is everywhere and especially because it's related to, um, punishment by the gods specifically, there are though, um, your question was, was, uh, really did that ever inspire kind of sympathy or empathy, uh, with the, um, person who has been disabled by a God and there are. A couple of examples where that does happen, I'm thinking of, so that that prophet character who I referred to earlier when I was talking about the story of Oedipus Tyrannus, the prophet's called Tiresias. Um, and Tiresias is, in some versions of the story, blinded uh, because he's seen a goddess naked. And that's a, you know, uh, a, a pretty common story, is that somebody sees something that mortals are um, not expected to see, and for that reason, they're blinded uh, by a god. And there's a poem, or a hymn rather, that's a particular kind of poem that it is, um, by Callimachus, where we meet Tiresias' mum. And Tiresias' mum is kind of railing against the gods and she's saying, look, I really don't think it's fair that you've done this to my son, that you've blinded him. And she sort of is making excuses for him. Um, and the gods say, well, hold on, you know, it it, it could have really been much worse. We could have killed him and they, and they actually give a, another example. They say, well, look at what happened to Actaeon, and Actaeon is in a different myth, somebody who saw the goddess Artemis, um, the goddess of the hunt naked while she was bathing in a forest as you do. Um, and Actaeon kind of stumbles in, whether he did it deliberately or not is a subject of much debate, but sort of stumbled in, sees her naked, um, and he is transformed into a, a stag and he's a hunter at Tyon that's what he's doing in the forest so he's transformed into a stag and with all of his hunting dogs and all of these hunting dogs have of course been out searching for this stag all day so he transforms into a stag the dogs immediately go oh great here's that stag that we've been looking for and they tear him to pieces and he dies so in the cove poem, power Tiresis's mother is told um well you know it could have been worse we could have done to him what we did to act so blindness in that sense sometimes the gods um say that this is a kind of a kind of gentler punishment and there are examples um in greek literature where um that case is made that it was really unfair um uh, you know a, a, an example another example would be in in herodotus' histories where um evenius who's a, a kind of shepherd is is he's kind of sent out to protect a flock of sheep from being attacked by wolves um, and he basically, you know, doesn't, doesn't do his job. Um, the sheep are killed and he's blinded, uh, as a punishment. Um, but it's actually the gods in that sense who say, you know, this was not a fair punishment, the punishment that, that he was given. So they have more sympathy with him than, than the humans who have blinded him for, for not looking after their sheep, but what they do in response. In fact, the only thing that they can do the gods very often is they give him a gift. And in this uh, this story that I'm referring to in Herodotus's histories, they say we'll give him a gift that will mitigate the loss of his eyesight, right? We'll give him something that that will will make it okay that he's blinded. And this pattern of being given something to compensate for lack of sight is very, very common. And sometimes it comes from, as I've described, the kind of place of empathy. um it comes from saying, well, we've we've taken away something, so we'll we'll give this thing in exchange, Um, that is also, of course, this idea of compensation is also, of course, uh, an incredibly ableist trope, Um, you know, no no less ableist than the connection between punishment uh, and and blindness or the idea that's encoded within that connection that blind people have done something wrong, right? That blindness proves a sin of some kind, which is so, so, so common um, in ancient myth. Shall I say a bit more about that? That.
0: Compensation would that be helpful? Yeah, maybe to to uh like uh because uh it's um, it it seems uh, uh okay losing the eyesight uh, uh especially unfairly it's uh, is something negative uh, but there is a compensation so why is this kind of uh, enforcing a negative uh, uh, trope about blindness? this is a really good question that
1: I'm asked this question relatively frequently. People will say, Oh, but you know, someone like Tiresias was very honored as a prophet, right? He had a very, um, he was very sort of respected. He's summoned by the King in of Tyrannus, the play that I was referring to earlier. Um, so, you know, that this was not someone who was socially marginalized. Um, and that's of course true, but my, my response to this is always really very simple. And it's that superhumanizing people is not humanizing them. Yeah. Treating someone as a superhuman is not the same thing as treating them as a human being. And in fact, people often forget that the, the, um, this kind of attributing of superhuman characteristics is actually a very, very common form of prejudice and dehumanizing. And it's also often a precursor to inflicting suffering on those people, right? We first say the people are superhuman and then we inflict a suffering upon them. Think for instance, of, um, the way that the enslaved people in the transatlantic slave trade were often said to have a superhumanly strong, um, uh, or superhumanly high pain threshold, for instance, or to be superhumanly physically strong. And the reason for saying that they were superhuman in that way was to dehumanize them and compel them into enslavement to make them seem like they were particularly appropriate or that their their black bodies were particularly appropriate, more appropriate than white bodies for that kind of enforced physical labor. So there's often a reason why that superhumanizing happens. And, you know, another example would be, um, you know, the Palestinians who are currently living under Israeli genocide who are being portrayed often in the media as superhumanly forbearing, superhumanly faithful in in Allah, in their God, you know, kind of superhumanly able to bear this. When, of course, you know, the the reason why that is often said is to make people, particularly in the West, feel like it's okay to inflict this, you know, horrendous colonial genocidal violence upon them. So this superhumanizing is absolutely not a form of humanizing. And in fact, um... In disability studies, this, this is a very often theorized phenomenon. I'm thinking especially of the work of scholars like Eli Clare and Sammy Schalk, who have done an awful lot of work to theorize this as something that they call the super trope. The idea of imagining disability to be a superpower. And there are a number of problems with this, dis- I mean, with, with this, um, narrative of disability, and we see this still in the modern world all over the place, right? We see it, um. When we hear those stories in the media of a disabled person who, you know, for reasons of the lift being broken in the Metro station has had to drag themselves to the top of the staircase, or as a kind of savior narrative where, you know, some passerby has had to carry often incredibly dangerously, uh, a disabled person to the top of the staircase. And these things, we tell these stories as if they were heroic feats, but what that hides is the incredible inaccessibility of an environment that would force a person into that kind of, you know, completely undesirable situation where they are very much not in control as they should be of their own lives. And they're very much at the mercy of, of other people. So these stories of overcoming these kind of supercrypt tropes that position the disabled character or when it's in the media, uh, when it relates to real life, the disabled person as some kind of, you know, superhuman who could do these unbelievable things, um, are actually really, really problematic. And, you know, they're, they're problematic because they are told as personal stories of overcoming, which deliberately cover up often what should be a a kind of societal conversation, a social conversation about why it was that that environment was allowed to be so inaccessible for the disabled person in the first place, um, Eli Clare puts this, you know, really, really well. Um, Eli Clare says um, that, that these these supercrypt stories um, never focus on the conditions that make it so difficult. Um, he gives the example of blind people having adventures, right? So difficult for blind people to have adventures or for disabled kids to play sports, and then goes on to say, I don't mean medical conditions. I mean, material, social, legal conditions. I mean, lack of access, lack of employment, lack of education lack of personal attendant services, I mean, stereotypes and attitudes, oppression. So the the role that these stories play in society is that they stop us from having a conversation about how to make society more accessible to disabled people because they focus on, you know, these kind of um, very mythologized and often, um, you know, unfairly told stories about how incredible disabled people can overcome Uh, all of these very, very difficult situations. So these are actually stories that feed prejudice. They're actually stories that stop us from making society much more accessible to disabled people in in ways that we obviously should. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by
0: dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6'1", since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey... (sighs) Well...
1: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the case of Tiresias specifically, it might be worth me just giving a kind of quick footnote because there is something interesting about Tiresias. So, so, so Tiresias, as I've said, is what um, someone like Sammy Schalk um, in our work would would call uh, a super crypt story, um, because he's given this kind of superhuman ability, the ability to see the future, um, as a compensation, it, that's the logic of the myth as a compensation for having lost his eyesight. And he appears, you know, everywhere in the theater, there are so many stories uh, about Tiresias and I'm using the, the, the pronoun he there for Tiresias in a sense incorrectly, uh, Tiresias is someone who in a different myth that I won't go into. Um, spends is a, is a kind of genderqueer character who spends, you know, some time uh, as a man, some time as a woman, um, for reasons that, that relate to a, a kind of tryst with the gods. So I'm I'm, I'm using the the term he of Tiresias because um, that is the gender that he most often identifies with in the theatre, though that's not the case for his uh, or their genderqueer presentation in, in other myths. But uh, in the theatre, what is kind of most interesting to the theater um, about Tiresias is the connection between prophecy and uh, loss of sight. And this actually makes Tiresias fairly unusual among prophets. It's not that every prophet in the ancient world was blind. In fact, there are a number of different ways that you could receive prophecy in the ancient world. You could simply uh, inherit it. You could have parents who are prophets and then you become a prophet. That happened. You could uh, fall asleep under the wrong tree and have your ears licked by snakes. And then as a result, you could develop prophecy from that. Um, there are even a number of texts, particularly around, um, or particularly the ancient texts of the place that we now call the Middle East, the ancient Middle East. Um, there are a number of texts that stipulate that prophets, sh- prophets should be, um, free of, um, and I'm now going to quote the language of the text of squinting eyes. So there's this idea of, um, idealized uh, physical perfection that is also about um having eyes that that um were shaped in particular ways or worked in particular ways so it's not at all the case that blindness and prophecy always go together in fact you know in in, in this particular uh medical text that i just made reference to blindness and prophecy probably don't go together at all eyesight and prophecy probably go together so tiresis is, is fairly unusual um in the history of of or in the, the kind of mythical corpus uh of ancient prophets but i think the theater's obsession with him though is precisely because he makes this connection between blindness and insight um which you know is is so uh surprising for a a theatrical form that has often been understood after all to be absolutely grounded in vision we call it in english the theater um that's a, a word that that uh, comes from from the Greek word seatomai, which is the verb that means I see. So the theatre is quite literally um, a seeing space, right? The extent to which it actually functioned as a seeing space, uh, I think is very, very debatable. I think that is a sort of misconception um, that we have uh, fallen into around the theatre because We've wanted it to sit at the head of a European theatrical tradition that has privileged vision. I mean, the theatre is an extraordinarily inaccessible space. Um, The number of performances, even in large-scale theatre venues, you know, in the global north today, the number of performances that are accessible to blind audiences and blind spectators is woefully, woefully low. The theatre is an extraordinarily ableist place. And part of that is because of an assumption that it's a place for seeing. Now, in the ancient theatre, um, I don't know if you've ever been to a or, or any of those kinds of ancient theatre complexes, really, because they're enormous. They're not kind of small theatre spaces the way we, we imagine the theatre today. Even someone with with you know extremely good eyesight would struggle to see an awful lot when you think about the kind of distance away from the action where the the um, or the distance between the spectators and the performers that was likely to have been the case for most of the spectators in that that kind of theatrical setting so i think probably um it's a misconception of the theater to say that the theater is a place for seeing but it's a misconception it, it it's, it's of course a, 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 in reality a kind of multi-sensory experience um that can be um engaged in in different ways by people with different kinds of of uh sensory uh perception or sensory modalities but the idea that it is space for seeing has been incredibly important, um, to Greek theater's position at the head of, a, a tradition of, of European theater. So we have wanted, or Europe has wanted to claim Greek tragedy for the beginning of that tradition to kind of give it an origin point. Um, and so we've wanted to imagine that it was predominantly about seeing. And so it's unsurprising then that we then have this theater history that's been obsessed with this figure of Tiresias. Um, who, you know, precisely uh, is so important to the theater because he undermines that relationship between seeing and knowing. So there's a lot of baggage here in the theater, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write a book focusing on these tropes in the theater specifically. There's a lot of baggage here, um, particularly because, you know, Europe has wanted to claim Greek theater as the head of its own theatrical tradition, and it's done that by leaning on this idea that the theater is a space for seeing and that has led i think to the perpetuation of of many of these ableist tropes but not just to the perpetuation of those tropes right it's also led to the theater becoming materially speaking an extremely inaccessible space and and that still unfortunately
0: remains the case today sure absolutely and uh well talking about uh, well you, you mentioned the case of the character of uh, of Teresius, uh, as uh, uh, as being in some versions of the myth uh, as a female and uh uh Thinking about the the, the 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 vast majority of the characters that you discuss in your book are all male characters, uh, is uh, like uh, losing the eyesight not something uh, that uh, uh, kind of appropriate for a woman <laughs> in, in uh, or unthinkable for a woman <laughs> too much <laughs> for uh, in uh in uh, ancient uh, ancient culture or how how can we explain uh, this uh, this uh, like uh, uh, this gap?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting thing. And, and I say this in the book as well. I sort of stop halfway and say, hold on a minute, something's really wrong here. Because even though, you know, in in, in reality, in the world around us, two thirds of blind people in the world are women. You know, the vast majority of them live in the global south and two thirds of them are women. So, you know, even though, um, and, and of course, just a quick aside on that data, of course, data of this kind is gathered in an incredibly binary sense um so when we say two-thirds of them are women um that's of course you know not accurate to many many people's experiences of gender but it's unfortunate that we have to deal with the data as we have it and that data is kind of cut in a binary sense uh between women and men so um i apologize for that we have to deal with the data that we have um but you're right that it's totally surprising two-thirds of blind people in the world um are women but yet You wouldn't know that from, you know, simply uh, reading or watching or listening to some ancient Greek plays because, you know, nearly exclusively we meet blind characters who are male characters. And I think that that has to do with another kind of trope um, about blindness, which again still operates with very, very malicious and harmful effects today, which is the connection between blindness and castration. And this uh, comes obviously through psychoanalysis and, and, and by Freud and via the idea that uh, sexual attraction uh, has this key component, which is um, it's usually kind of gendered, uh, binary gendered in a very old fashioned way as, um, you know, for men being about seeing and for women being about being seen. That's the kind of very old psychoanalytical model of understanding sexual attraction. So viewing is something that is required for, for, for sexual attraction, according to this psychoanalytical model. And, um, David Bolt in his book explains this. And I think really quite interestingly explains it as a kind of eugenics, right. Or, or, you know, what I would call in my work by analogy with the narrative prejudice term, what I would call narrative eugenics, right. This is a, a way of telling a story that is. Eugenicist in its effects, and and Bolt points out that it became particularly this this um, idea that viewing is required for sexual attraction became particularly popular um, after the first International Congress for Eugenics in 1912. So there is a kind of um, a kind of eugenicist motivation here of positioning viewing as part of sexual attraction. And I think that that also comes into play. If We go back to the story of the Oedipus Tyrannus that I, I told at, at the beginning of our conversation. I think that this idea um, also kind of helps to explain the maleness of blind characters in tragedy. Because if you think of um, what the real concern is for Oedipus in that, in that play, it's all about um, parentage. It's all about the idea of inheritance. It's about the throne. It's about you know, wrongful, um, or, or thinking that, that your father is not your father, <laughs> it's a whole story about lineage really. Um, and so there's a sense in which, um, you kind of metaphorically speaking, uh, under this connection between blindness and castration, you also end the idea of there being a lineage for Oedipus, you know, by, by blinding him because of this connection between the eyes and the phallus, which runs very, very deep in in psychoanalysis. So I would say um, that that's not always the case. As you go sort of into more modern theatre history, it's not the case that the blind characters uh, are always male. Um, there are a number of examples, particularly in Victorian farce traditions, plays like *The Blind Wife*, for instance. Um, there are examples of uh, blinded women characters. But it is very, very common uh, for this to concern male characters in the ancient world and particularly because it is understood as a sort of metaphor for the idea of, um, you know, progeny and lineage because it's understood as kind of symbolic castration. I didn't focus, um, you know, perhaps so much on that trope in the book that I could have done. And I think what I what I would have said, uh, the way I think it does play out in, in people's lives in really important ways is in prejudices that still exist today against blind parents there are still you know and, and and i know that it's a prejudice that's perpetuated against uh disabled people more broadly um is the assumption that they uh will be less able to parent than enabled people um and also the idea that they, um, they don't seek in their lives, you know, meaningful romantic relationships, marriages, meaningful sexual relationships, um, those sorts of things, you know, that it's not, it's not my personal experience to have those things directed at me because I began by saying, I'm a, a, I think of myself as a non-disabled or an enabled researcher, but I know this as a trope that operates in the world. So, so part of the reason that I, that I didn't, uh, focus on it and that I'm not focusing extensively on it now, um, is that. It isn't my experience and there are people better able to articulate the kind of more familial um, operations of these kinds of, of narrative ableism. I think that enabled researchers should be very, very careful. Um, the phrase, nothing about us without us uh, was not the rallying cry of disability justice movements for no reason. It was the rallying cry of those movements for a particularly important reason. So. I think that enabled researchers should be very, very careful that they're not claiming to speak for an experience that they've not had. Um, and the experience of being told, you know, that I'm an inadequate parent, uh, because of my disability is not an experience that I've had, but I do know that it is, uh, something that is perpetuated in the world. And I would, um, frame it very much in relationship with this kind of narrative eugenics, this relationship between blindness and castration, which is also the explanation or the overwhelming uh, number of of male uh, blind characters in ancient texts i think
0: sure and and speaking about that other like uh, um case of uh, uh enable uh, individuals uh, in this in that case actors performers uh, the the of, of course in the in, uh, ancient uh, well of course in well, what we know in ancient Greece uh, in ancient theater the uh, all the actors playing uh, Blind characters—they uh, were not blind, and uh, uh, they had—you uh, use the term to cripple up <laughs> to to perform uh, the role of a blind uh, of a blind man on uh, on stage, and well, this is uh, looks something that uh, it's very much uh, remained unchanged. Uh, if we take a, a look, for instance, uh, at uh, the number of uh, performances of uh, blind of uh, disabled characters in Hollywood movies uh, that are performed played by able. Uh, Actors and uh, actresses uh, that uh, uses this choose uh, seem to choose this kind of role as a kind of award baiting role because oh my gosh how talented do you have to be to perform someone who is tetraplegic or 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 autistic and this is something that uh, we don't see. The vis a vis of performers uh, in, if you take a look at other kind of uh, minorities, for example, it's not long, it's no longer culturally acceptable for us to have uh, uh, Othello played uh, Lawrence Oliver style uh, wearing blackface, uh, as uh, it's not acceptable to have uh, a male actor playing uh, a woman character for uh, no reason, for the reason that the women uh, are not appropriate uh, to, stage, to be on stage or uh, to play uh, in a movie. So, how why the case of disability seems to remain like unchanged? Uh, the...
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right that um, this is a huge, huge problem, and um, it's in fact, you know, one of one of the most obvious routes to an act, to an Oscar for an enabled actor is unfortunately to take the role of a disabled character, because as a society, we very much reward um, successful cripping up. That's to say, successful playing of a disabled role by an enabled actor and by successful i mean a performance that is judged to be authentic in some way judged to be of a high quality um and all these things are extremely extremely problematic right i should say first of all the term creeping up is, is not my term um it's a term that has been used widely in criticism of this practice it's used for instance by by francis ryan um in some of her work where she talks about some of these problems um of enabled actors playing disabled roles um and you're right also that it, it come it came about sort of analogously with um this problem being articulated around race and racialization um with the uh the playing of particularly black roles by white actors being something that was for much of their history absolutely accepted as normal um but then, you know, became something. And if you trace the, the performance history of a play like Othello, as you've said, you can see exactly the moment at which um, you know, black actors begin to play Othello first um to kind of consternation from the crowd and then uh you know to increasing acclaim. And 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 now you're right that um we wouldn't expect a large um theater company, a large um Particularly a, a, a well-supported uh, Shakespearean theatre company, we wouldn't expect them to cast uh, a white actor in in a a role of a character of colour, but yet that is still unfortunately very very common in the case of disabled roles and enabled actors. So I and 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 this is a problem for various reasons. I mean, it's a it's a huge material problem for disabled actors, right? It relies on an assumption that there simply aren't uh, Large numbers of disabled actors, which is straightforwardly untrue. I mean, if you look at the work that companies like uh, Ramps on the Moon have been doing, for instance, you can see that there is absolutely no shortage of extremely talented disabled actors. Um, so the idea that this is a a material problem, that it, that it's a problem that's caused by, you know, some kind of pipeline issue, or that the the actors aren't being trained or they don't exist, that's simply untrue. There are extraordinary numbers. Um, Of very, very talented actors, stabled actors who simply could play these roles. They could be cast in those roles, but they're not. And so you're right. The question is, well, why aren't they, or at least they're not kind of on the whole with with regularity. And I would say that the answer to this question, which is essentially a question about representation, or that's the way it would often be articulated as a kind of unfair representation where we end up with um, you know, there are not being enough roles for, for disabled actors and disabled actors therefore, being underrepresented in the industry. So it's framed as a problem of representation. I actually think it's a problem of narrative and ableism. And I, and I suppose I would think that because I wrote a book about narrative ableism and so in that sense, <laughs> I'm simply, you know, proving what I think to be important, which might be a sort of solipsistic thing to do. But the reason I don't think it's so solely a kind of solipsistic thing to do is because, um, I think that narrative ableism often requires enabled actors to play those roles and an example by giving the book um, is an example of a a new musical uh, that i think was a 2017 musical that's called the braille legacy and that musical so as its name indicates it's a musical about the life uh of louis braille the uh much famed uh french inventor of the braille alphabet and um it's about the life of louis braille uh living in uh the institution for blind youth in paris And what is fascinating about this musical is you would think, right, if if you simply read the blurb of this musical, you would think this is going to be an incredible opportunity to cast, you know, lots and lots of of blind actors um, in these roles. That would seem like the obvious assumption to make. But one of the ways that these narrative ableism tropes that I've been talking about played out in this production was that, um, and, and I went to watch this uh, in London, actually, when, when it came to London, and one of the things that the chorus did, it had this chorus of uh, young blind boys who lived with Louis Braille and were kind of his friends. And to indicate the blindness of these children, the actors wore blindfolds um, across their eyes, and they removed these blindfolds at kind of narratively meaningful moments in the production, such as when they learned to read braille or when they came to some kind of understanding about something they had previously misunderstood, or when they died, they also removed their blind shots. So you can see here there maybe some of the echoes of some of the tropes that I've been talking about, but the idea was that vision and blindness were not, were not simply, um, abilities, right? They weren't simply relating to, to bodies and minds, they were in fact, um, symbols. They, they were symbols, vision and blindness were symbols of knowledge and ignorance. And they function that way throughout the production. And in order to make them function in that way, you can't cast blind actors, right? Because blind actors, most blind actors simply don't have um, the capability to transform at any given moment into sighted actors. That isn't possible for them. And so in order to make this narrative ableism work on stage, the production team was required to cast enabled actors in those roles. So what I'm saying is there's a connection between problems of underrepresentation, which, you know, as I've said, are urgent and could be solved almost immediately uh, by more accessible and fairer casting practices and programming choices, um, and should be solved immediately. Um but There's a connection between those problems of representation and this narrative ableism that that I've explained, because in many, many cases, it's the narrative ableism that in fact, you know, then requires the casting of enabled actors in those roles, because the minute we use disability symbolically or metaphorically, then we not only divorce it from real lived experience, but we also, um, you know, then require a body that can both perform the disability and perform, you know, the enabled role that is positioned metaphorically as its antithesis. So we create a situation where production companies then think that they have to cast enabled actors and that simply perpetuates the problem. So we need fair representation immediately, but we also need to end narrative ableism and to stop writing characters, you know, with these incredibly ableist tropes so that we no longer are in a position where production companies can say, oh, well, we had to cast. A, a sighted actor to play this blind role because when he removes his blindfold, he has to be able to see. That is an undesirable situation that we need to get out of.
0: And, and in, in order to like uh, to to put an end to this vicious circle, as a spectators, uh, do we have any kind of agency, or uh, uh, we are kind of condemned to absorb uh, what the, uh, kind of this kind of ableist uh, tropes? I think that we do i think that we have enormous amounts of agency i think
1: we feel in a position of powerless as i explained at the beginning of our conversation because we feel like oh these things have been with us so long um you know there's nothing we can do it's simply mythological it doesn't have an effect on real life you know it's just stories but as i hope i've explained it's really not just stories um it really does have an effect on real life and the fact of it having been here since antiquity is in no sense an excuse to continue perpetuating it. And I think here, we need to think about the real economy of the theater, the real economics behind how the theater works. And one thing to note before we have this conversation about the economics of the theater is that, um, as I've already made reference to, theaters are, um, you know, to their great detriment, extremely inaccessible Spaces. I mean, the, the production that I referred to just now, the Braille legacy, um, that had in the London run in which I watched the production, it only had, um, two accessible performances that had by accessible, I mean, performances that had things like touch tours, um, and audio descriptions and those kinds of things that would make it accessible for blind audience members. Um, it only had two in its entire run of those kinds of accessible performances. And both of them happened on the same bank holiday weekend. So if you were a blind audience member who wanted to see that show and you happened to be away on bank holiday weekend, there was simply no way that, that, that you could have, have engaged with that performance. You were prohibited from doing so because it was inaccessible to you. So when we think about theater audiences, um, it's important that we don't romanticize them, you know, theaters have, have done good work in some ways and are continuing to do work around material accessibility for audiences. But that work really needs to accelerate because it's still the case that uh, certain groups are really overrepresented within theatre audiences. And and by that, I don't just mean enabled people. I also mean, uh, you know, the middle class, white people, for instance, are also people who are overrepresented um, in theatre audiences. So when we talk about, you know, what what should spectators, audiences um, do in response to this? We're really talking about solidarity because we're talking about spaces that will predominantly be full of sighted people, not entirely, but predominantly because of that material inaccessibility of the theater. So we're not talking about on the whole, people who are themselves, um, victim of the kinds of discrimination that this narrative ableism feeds into, although, um, you know, everyone should, should be aware that disability is not a fixed category, it's a category into which, you know, for, for, for. Reasons of uh, age, illness, uh, disablement, accident, anyone can move into at any time in their lives. Um, so, you know, this shouldn't be something that people see as a, as a hard and fast distinction between, you know, people who are enabled and people who are, who are disabled, um, as well as of course, uh, it it being the case that disability studies has long used the social model, uh, which understands disability as at least in part socially produced. So. Just because certain bodies are enabled by certain kinds of environments doesn't mean that different kinds of environments won't enable different bodies. So no one should think of themselves um, outside of disability justice activism. That's the kind of prologue that I'm trying to give here. But when we think about theater audiences, we are thinking on the whole, not entirely, but on the whole of large groups of usually cited people. And so this becomes then a kind of political solidarity movement, right? I'm a sighted person for the reasons I've, as I've explained, um, I'm not, uh, someone who, uh, thinks that narrative ableism about blindness is wrong because it affects me personally. I think that it's wrong because I think that it's unjust that it affects anyone at all. That is a kind of political solidarity, right? And saying, you know, that, that, that it's important that we be in political solidarity. Because injustice is wrong in itself. It's not only wrong when it affects you. And so when we're talking about theater audiences and what they can do, what we're really saying is how should that political solidarity play out in the theater for them? What, what should their role be? Um, and you know, very, very simply, there is no theater without people buying tickets to go to the theater, right? Theater, you know, is under immense. Pressure funding wise, particularly, you know, in the UK where I live, there is increasing pressure on theatres, but one of the main sources of, of funding of theatres is the pockets of the audiences and the spectators at, at those productions. So we, I think, should be much more active in that spectating. It always um, amuses me that you only have to kind of put a C in the word spectator for it to become spect-actor um because i think that spectators should think of themselves as much more actively involved this is not a passive passive process that they're involved in and you know the thing is if the theater is putting on a production or has you know written a new play even that is engaging in this kind of narrative ableism it's because they think that audiences are going to be okay with it it's because they think that you're going to buy tickets anyway and you're going to go to the theater Because it's because a producer somewhere has worked out that actually, you know, the 200 people or the 2000 people, or however many people it needs to fill the theater every night are going to come anyway, in spite of this ableism that, that, that they might be engaged in. So we have this power and it's to break that complacency on the part of theaters. Right. By which I mean, don't go and see a play that, you know, has cast or has made what you think is an unethical casting choice or is engaging in this, this kind of, um, you know, this kind of ableism that I'm, that I've been speaking about, don't go, you know, don't see the play right to the theater, become a problem. Yeah. Make it a problem for them to do this. If they're doing it, it's because they think we're not bothered. It's because they think we are passive and we sit there and we watch what is put on and we eat our ice cream in the interval. And you know, they're imagining that, that we don't have agency, but we do have agency. So, um, you know, think about what your power is, think about what your agency is, and use that power. Be disruptive, even if that disruption is only limited to not buying a ticket um, and and telling all of your friends not to buy a ticket and not going to see these things. There are kind of ways of of dealing with that complicity. And, and in the book, I should say, I don't actually use the word complicity very often. I use this word implicity. Um, which I'm, I'm taking from the work of Michael Rothberg, um, and Michael Rothberg coins this kind of uh, this idea of the implicit spectator, and and coins it to describe um, people who might not themselves be the direct agents of injustice, but who nonetheless benefit from those injustices, or are complicit or implicit in perpetuating the injustices by their presence by being there, by being involved in it. And Rothbard gives various um, colonial examples, right? He talks about people who, for instance, you know, were born uh, after the formal decolonization uh, of a particular place. So didn't themselves inflict colonial violence on indigenous people, but nonetheless benefited because of their whiteness, because of their wealth, because of some other, you know, aspect of, of the way that they are constructed in the world benefited from that violence that's the example that Rothberg uses um you know but in my book I'm, I'm thinking about this implicit um a, or, or this kind of implicity as being something that that we do all the time in the theater right we we perhaps are not actively complicit um it might not be your decision who is cast in a particular role or whether or not particular uh, types of trope get written into particular characters and narratives, that might not be your decision. But it is your decision whether you go. That's the, the number one decision you get to make. And you have all sorts of other decisions to make as well, right? If you don't go, do you also write to the head of commissioning at the theatre and explain to them why you haven't gone? And and you can probably tell from, you know, the amount of talking that I've done over the last hour that I'm not someone who um, is kind of, quiet with my word, I will very, very much write to, uh, theaters all the time and explain to them why I think certain things perpetuate narrative ableism, but we can all do that work. Right. We're all, um, actively part of the theater, um, as a, other as a kind of community as people who, who go there, um, let, let's not be relied on to perpetuate these things. Let's instead be relied on to be in political solidarity with people who are being harmed by these injustices. And, you know, be active in ending this narrative ableism.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Cella. Fascinating conversation. I have a last question for you. If you can uh, talk about it, uh, what are your plans for future research? Well, um, that is always a very interesting question. Um,
1: So, one of the things that this book, writing this book showed me a, a number of interesting things, and one of the things that it showed me was that um, narrative ableism is not only something that exists for ableism. We could also talk about you know narrative racism. We could talk about narrative Islamophobia. We could talk about um, you know narrative anti-Semitism. We could talk about all, all all different kinds of of narrative prejudice. So that's one important thing that it showed me that has really influenced what I want to do next. The other really important thing that it showed me um, is that so many of the ways that we think about our relationship with the classical or with ancient Greece and Rome are really problematic. And when I say problematic, I mean, they cause us to perpetuate these kinds of prejudices. And the one that I identify in the book as really, really problematic is the thing called the classical tradition. Um, and listeners won't be able to, to see this, uh, because the podcast is only audio. When I said the classical tradition, I was making with my fingers, those enormous scare quotes that, uh, that indicate that I, I really don't think there's either such a thing as a classical tradition, nor do I support it as an idea. Um, but the classical tradition is the, um, the standard way that we have understood, or at least that, um, that Europe, uh, has understood or has narrativized that connection between, um, the ancient and the modern. So Europe as a colonial project, um, and, and also for obvious reasons, North America um, have wanted, um, as I said earlier on, to claim ancient Greece and Rome as their the kind of origin point in order to to make the case for their own supremacy, right? Like a kind of superhero uh, origin story is I think how, how I described it. Um, and in order to do that, they've kind of engineered this idea of a family relationship, right? We talk about uh, our kind of forefathers, you know, the Greeks and the Romans, we think about them as being just like us, um, in the global north, but, but only, you know, many, many hundreds of years ago. Um, and we frame that as a classical tradition. We talk about ourselves uh, being in a tradition that ultimately might, might have several stages. It might go through, I don't know, some other canonical authors, Shakespeare, Milton, whoever. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it will end up with the Greeks and the Romans. And that's a kind of, it's almost like a family tree logic that gets produced, a kind of genealogy, um, that serves, I mean, that's, it's not at all neutral, right? It's, it serves absolutely to, to, um, to kind of undergird or to, to, uh, make the case for European supremacy and, and, and particularly, um, colonial supremacy. So that narrative is extremely problematic for a number of reasons. And the reason I have to take it on in this book about narrative ableism is because I have to say This narrative has made it possible for us in the modern world to believe that we are not responsible for the perpetuation of these tropes, right? It's allowed us to say, um, oh yeah, I guess it's bad that I wrote a villain, um, whose disability was supposed to explain their villainous. I guess that is bad, but we've been doing that since the ancient Greeks and it's really just a literary trope. And you know, those excuses are in a sense excuses that have worked because we have imagined ourselves to be the passive inheritors of these things, you know, from, from the ancient world. So what became obvious to me when writing this book was we need very different ways of understanding that classical tradition. We need to understand that we are, um, in the modern world, we are ethically responsible, but we are also active in the way that we imagine that ancient world. It's not something that is just passively handed down to us. So I'm working now, um with a, a collective of scholars, a very, very global collective of scholars, um, a collective that, that I co-run um, with my colleague Madhara Inward Chandran um, that's called the Critical Ancient World Studies Collective. And it's a way of um, reframing that relationship between the ancient and the modern so that we don't understand ourselves in the modern world as the passive inheritors of antiquity. Um, and that, of course, allows us to do things like undermine uh, European supremacy and uh, kind of undermine uh, various colonial ideas about the importance of the West, for instance, or even the idea of the West as itself a colonial idea. Anyway, I could go on for a long time about the various uh, decolonial shifts that this collective is hoping that uh, rethinking the relationship between ancient and modern will allow us to make. But that's the work that we're now doing is kind of, you know, building on um, some of the issues that I was coming up against um, when writing this book. Um, things that were making it difficult for me to simply say, "Look, abandon this narrative ableism. Go and write better stories, fairer stories, more just stories." Um, There were things about the classical and the way that we imagine it that were holding me back from saying that. And this collective is really about finding the things that will allow us to use the classical not to perpetuate inequalities as as it uh, you know is currently used uh, in a large part to do,
0: but to imagine uh, a much more just future for everyone. Fascinating. Looking forward for reading the work of uh, your work and your your colleagues. Marcella Gorta, "Lining and Spectatorship in Ancient and Modern Theatres uh, Towards New Ways of Looking and Looking Back, uh, Cambridge University Press uh, 2023. Thank you so much, Chama, for having this uh, conversation with us uh, today. And uh, well, I wish you all the best with uh, your future research. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.